0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to this month's podcast entitled On the Investment Radar. My name is Lorna Denny, and I'm joined today to discuss the outlook for the second half of the year by Jaime Arguello, Remy Lombert, and from AXA Investment Managers, our special guest, Chris Igo. Inflation has been the spectre stalking the markets in the first half of this year. Major central banks are insisting that inflation will prove only transitory, but are nonetheless monitoring developments extremely carefully. But given unprecedented levels of fiscal and monetary stimulus post-pandemic, why should it be that this time is different? How can the major economies avoid a sustained rise in inflation? And of course, how will that impact financial markets in the second half? Jaime, could I start by asking you to put the first half of the year into context for us?
1: Yes, of course. Thank you, Lorna. So so in the first half of the year, markets have been driven by a lot of optimism in the control of the pandemic, Uh, the succession of the for rollout, and of course, continued fiscal and monetary stimulus. So more specifically, from a macro perspective, we saw a strong significant recovery from the end of Q1, and that was some extent a continuation of the rebound from, of course, very depressed levels in 2020. And in that context, developed markets did better than emerging markets. On the fiscal stimulus front, the impact remained strong and we saw additional initiatives in the US. As you mentioned, one of the key developments was the increase in inflation expectations, which led to a sharp adjustment in the U.S. yield curve, particularly to a new trading range, I would say around 1.5 to 1.75 in 10-year U.S. bonds. And I think the speed of the adjustment was the surprise for the markets and created some volatility in early one. In this context, monetary policy remained quite benign, and central banks reiterated their dovish stance. In phase with a strong cyclical recovery, equities delivered strong performance. And it's interesting to note that the performance was driven by earnings which contrasts with 2020 when it was mainly multiple expansion that returns bonds were down credit outperformed and overall relatively good results on equities around 11 percent of global equities european equities outperforming. US and emerging markets government bonds down around three percent corporate slightly better and high yield delivered strong performance of around three percent and clearly the commodity space was particularly strong with, in many cases a return of around 30 percent
0: Thank you. That was a very useful summary. Could you just briefly remind us, though, of the scale of recent stimulus packages?
1: Of course. In the U.S., we had several COVID relief deals and programs, which represented around $900 billion, which is pretty you know, pretty hefty six and a half around GDP. And there is, of course, a new American rescue plan, which we don't know if it's going to be approved yet, which is around 1.9 trillion, which is another potentially 12% of GDP. So very significant stimulus. In Europe, the recovery plan is a little bit more than half a trillion dollars and is around close to 3.5-4% of GDP.
0: Thank you. So, Remy, with that sort of massive stimulus in mind, would you say this was then an overreaction from the bond markets in February?
2: Well, first of all, Jaime touched slightly on it. What we saw was, first of all, if you look at the U.S. market, last year around August, we did see a rise in interest rates on the 10-year U.S. Treasuries, moving from about 05 to a bit less than 1%. And around February, when the markets started getting worried about those fiscal stimulus and the impact on the U.S. economy and economy overheating, we saw a sharp rise in nominal interest rates and we saw a steepening of the yield curve in the US. That translated also to some of the European markets, the UK market, Germany, France and other markets. And that's steepening, but not in the same type of steepening that we see in the US. And there were some worries in the market that actually inflation would not be transitory. We have a position where we think, and that's been supported by our macro analysts here at the AXA group, that this is only a temporary period where we can see the steepening and this sharp rise in interest rates.
0: Yes, thank you. But just to clarify there, a steeper yield curve means yields on longer-dated bonds rising faster than yields on short-dated bonds. So that reflects an expectation of higher interest rates in the future.
2: In terms of nominal rates, yes, exactly.
0: Thank you, yes. Chris, I wanted to bring you in here. Is it possible that given this backdrop, the central banks, and I'm thinking particularly of the US Fed here, have underestimated the potential for inflation to jump higher and stay higher from here?
3: Well, I think the answer to that question is we don't know yet. It's going to be several more months of watching the inflation data before we do know. The way we look at it, I think, is that this cycle is quite unusual in that right through the pandemic and the recovery that we've seen in recent quarters, the demand side of the global economy has held up very well. And that's been supported by all the fiscal stimulus and monetary stimulus. One of the you know, side effects of that has been good performance from bonds and equities and how and other assets so household wealth has remained very strong and indeed has continued to increase which stands in contrast to what happened in 2008 2009 for example which was a credit event that had a much bigger negative impact on business and household balance sheets so the demand side has stayed strong and the supply side of the global economy has been impacted by COVID and the disruptions that we've seen to labour markets and supply chains and I think it's that friction of demand being strong and coming back quite quickly now with supply that is somewhat constrained that is leading to these very sharp increases in some inflation numbers. Now, at the moment, and we've just had the data for May from the US, which showed another 0.7% increase on the month in core consumer price inflation. At the moment, it does look as though it is transitionary in that the things that are going up in price a lot are things like airline fares, hotel costs, some of the commodities that have been insured supply, which can include, you know, things like building materials as well as some of the industrial commodities. So the story that this is all transitional, this friction between supply and demand, I think still holds at the moment. And therefore, the market is generally giving the Fed the benefit of the doubt. When we look at the bond market and what's priced in, and we look at break-even inflation rates, which is the difference between the yield on nominal US Treasury government bonds and inflation-linked Treasury government bonds, that break-even spread, which is supposed to reflect the market's kind of expected view of where inflation will be over the medium term, is about 2.3%, which is entirely in line with the Fed's own target for inflation. So although the narrative is quite polarised about inflation at the moment, the market is, I guess, siding with the central bank for now.
0: Yes, thank you. And despite these recent strong CPI figures, as you said, the bond markets have largely stabilised since those rather jittery days earlier in the year. But in the equity markets, the clear divergence we've seen between growth sectors and value sectors has persisted, Remy.
2: Yes, exactly. As we speak, there's a difference of about 10% between the growth and value sector this year. So this for, and it's been a long time since we haven't seen a strong outperformance of value. Now that is due to mainly two sectors. The first one is energy. And we see a a rise in the commodities market, but all across commodities, agricultural commodities, precious metals, oil commodities, all of that has sharply increased over the last six months, supported by the pickup in Activity and in production. So we've seen oil start surging. And the second sector has been the financial sector. Why is that? Because of course, well, the financial sectors make money when yield curve is steepening because their job is to lend credit. So these two sectors are sectors that strongly represent the value sectors. They've been underperforming for a number of years. And with this environment and this configuration in the market, Well, they've supported mostly the value sector and they've been outperforming all of the other stocks. It's also interesting to see that last year it was a really gross story and performance in the growth sector was really, really strong. So investors also, there's the environment and some of the investors are probably taking a bit of their profits because last year on the growth sectors, they had excessive and really, really strong performances. So it's nothing to worry about, but there's this transition period and this is supporting two sectors, which is the energy and financial sector and therefore the value sector overall.
0: Yes, a transition period indeed. Jaime, what do you feel that this divergent performance is telling us?
2: In general, growth versus
1: value-reaching performance is driven by Two main factors: one is the level of growth, and the trend in growth, and also the trend in interest rates and the level of interest rates. You know, likely growth will maybe decelerate a little bit from very high levels that we have currently, but remain quite strong and above long-term trends for the next few quarters. Similar interest rates will probably continue to edge higher. So that's an environment that continues to be favorable to value stocks. For example, in the US, the valuation premium of growth versus value reached 130% at the peak in 2020. Now we're back to 70%, but still above an historical average of 50%.
0: The correlation in performance between stocks and bonds can become more positive, that is more similar during periods of inflation. Chris, any thoughts there?
3: Yeah, I think it can. It depends which part of the business cycle. We're in a strong recovery and inflation is picking up. So you would expect there to be a positive correlation between equities and you know risk-free yields in that part of the cycle. I think it gets more interesting as the cycle matures. A lot depends on what central banks do. If inflation does turn out, to be more persistent, then at some point, the Fed will have to kind of throw in the towel and say, okay, you know, we've seen enough now, we need to start to normalise short-term interest rates. Equities can still perform in that period, particularly if growth remains strong. But at some point, the yield curve will start to change shape, it will start to flatten, and short-term rates will go up by more than longer-term bond yields. And that creates a more difficult environment for equities, I think, because it's the maturing of the cycle, it's where earnings growth momentum starts to slow, and you start to see a differentiation between good quality long-term growth stocks and the more cyclical value stocks. And we're not there yet, and I don't expect we're going to get there anytime soon. But in that part of the cycle, I think the correlation between equities and, and bonds starts to change and, and turn negative. Where it gets really negative, of course, is in the part of the cycle when growth really rolls over. If the central banks did raise interest rates enough to really slow down the economy, you'd be looking at some potential negative downside for equities, but bond yields would fall under that kind of environment as people shifted towards more risk-free assets.
0: Yes, but still near term, we're very much in a rebound phase of the economies. And we've been told time and again by the Fed that their current focus is to bring unemployment down. That's the result of Covid last year. But one Fed governor recently commented that the jobs market is tighter than it looks. And this matters because it could affect the timing of the Fed's tapering or reducing of its bond buying programme. Jaime, could I ask you first of all, will the Fed start tapering before the end of this year?
1: I think it's highly likely and it's difficult to imagine that the Fed will not reduce the asset purchase program when GDP growth is so high, when there is a large stimulus still ongoing. And clearly the need for the Fed support is much reduced. I think they will probably start small, Or trying to communicate as clearly as possible to avoid any surprise from the market. And I would tend to say that this might start before the end of the year, maybe after the summer.
0: Chris, the same question to you.
3: I think I'd agree with Jaime that timing seems reasonable. We'll get a little bit more colour on that in August when the Fed has its Jackson Hole symposium where it usually kind of sets out more medium term thinking. But I think that's a reasonable time expectation. And obviously it will be data dependent and the Fed is not going to aggressively cut on its purchases, because as you noted before, Lorna, the US economy is not at the full employment level yet. So the Fed will take its time and be cautious. But of course, the market will then move to the next event, which is after tapering, when does the interest rate hike come? And that will be quite interesting for how bond markets trade.
0: Thank you. And your thoughts, Remy?
2: As you noted, since 2008 and the big crisis that we had that period, important element has been the communication of the central banks. They've really improved on that. So there's going to be a key element is the forward guidance and the central banks and especially the US Federal Reserve will start preparing the markets depending on what they're going to be doing. So tapering, as it was said, and then probably a rise in interest rates. So again, we'll be very cautious and we'll be very selective in what will be said by the central banks and by the Fed in their different comments, and they'll be preparing the markets because it's important for them to give them this visibility on their future actions.
0: Yes, and this second half could be quite a crucial period in all this communication. Hi, Jaime, could you please wrap up our discussion with a few words on how financial markets could respond to the backdrop we've described here?
1: Of course. So I believe the macro environment will remain very strong in the second half of the year across most regions. I think in this positive environment, uh, two key risks, and we already touched a little bit on that, is of course inflation. And I think the the risk there is that there is some very strong consensus on the impact of transitory effects on inflation. And the risk is that this effect might last several quarters. That it doesn't fade up in the next two, three quarters, which could certainly surprise the market and push yields up. And then again, the speed of this movement is key. And the other risk is obviously monetary policy, especially in the US, which eventually could surprise the market. And one of the key things also to assess here is. If inflation gets out of control, but above what the market is expecting, the risk is that if the Fed is late in this control of inflation, it might need to increase rates faster, which we know will impact the growth. It's very difficult for the Fed to pilot a soft landing. So if that risk materializes, it could be a significant impact in in markets. If not, I think bonds would remain in relatively tight range. Equities can green higher with relatively low volatility. And uh, carry Carrie via credit will continue to be interesting, but you only highly and logic that
0: should be an interesting period ahead. Thank you all very much indeed. Thank you. Thanks. Thanks. Thank you, Lorna.